TuneIn is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. That clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. And even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here. On TuneIn, go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only twenty-five dollars a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile, get four iPhone 15s on us, and four lines for twenty-five bucks per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. Welcome to Overnight America with Ryan Recker. Sponsored by Michael's Flooring, the flooring experts. Michael'sFlooringOutlet.com. On the voice of St. Louis, KMOX. Joining us now is someone that many people still ask about, Johnny Rabbit. How are you? Oh, Ryan Recker, I am fine. I know you're doing well. I hear you. That Overnight America is really quite a show. It's very enjoyable. You get a lot of guests, but you must have trouble tonight because we're on together. We're the rest of the guests. What's going on? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Oh, man. Well, I always like your historic segments in coming up at the Oasis, uh, St. Louis Oasis. Tomorrow you have yep. another virtual presentation talking about the historic hotels of the region. Yeah, How many historic right. hotels are actually here in St. Louis? Yeah, these are all hotels. Actually, now that you say that, they're almost all St. Louis City hotels. There, I'm mentioning a couple in the county, but it's really a history going way, way back. And again, it's uh, it'll be in the morning. It starts at ten. Just it's an hour program. Goes to eleven, uh, and it's through Oasis, wonderful organization. If anybody's interested, I they can still get into this, or they might be able to even do it right now by going to their website, which is STL oasis.org mm-hmm. that would be the fastest way to do it stloasis.org and you know, you know the, the I, I try to come up with subjects that try to you know the touch everybody everybody has a memory of a hotel or heard stories about hotels whether they're haunted hotels or where they stayed you know when they were a little kid or something so that's why I've come up with this but uh, we're going to really go back in time starting out with the National Hotel, which was our really first big hotel, so to speak, in St. Louis. Not big by today's standards. It had been the Scott Hotel before. Hmm. It actually dated back to 1817. Wow. And then it was updated in 1832. And the last National actually operated from 1847, 1847 to 1952. Wow. And that's a long time. This place was decrepit. It was really old, and it was a place that many of us at KMOX knew very well, because it's where the old KMOX studios were, in the Gateway Tower building at 3rd and Market. That was the site of this hotel. So many famous people stayed there. Abraham Lincoln slept there. He was on his way to Washington. He was going, uh, came from uh, Springfield down to St. Louis and then took the steamboat. Of, I'm not sure it's a jumping off spot, and then a stagecoach to Washington when he was a, a, a representative. So that, that's one of the hotels. It has a whole bunch of other stories and a lot of people. There was a, 
Now, this is something really close to our station, uh, the Astor Hotel, Mm -hmm. named for John Jacob Astor, the big fur guy, but he didn't actually own the hotel. Uh, But fur at this time, going back into the mid-1800s, was a big deal here. Mm -hmm. Uh, For example, Robert Campbell uh, actually was a hotel owner in St. Louis, and uh, the Campbell House Museum is, uh, is just an unbelievable museum uh, they're at 15th and Locust. That's authentic. I mean, that's the stuff this family used. Everything. It's in the story of his business, the fur business. But the Astor was at the corner of 13th and Olive. It would have been the, let's see, that would have been the northeast corner across from the library and on the north side of Olive from the Park Pacific building. Hmm. The Astor had a couple of things. It was the first. Uh, hotel in St. Louis to have an exterior fire escape. There were a lot of fires in hotels, and the first that had an electric sign. Huh? So all, you know, all these places have, you know, unusual things. Like there was a Saint. There were two St. Nicholas's Hotel. The first one, with they both of them were on Eighth Street. Uh, the first one uh, was a hospital for Union soldiers in the Civil War. That was another hotel that burned in 1867 on Washington. Uh, you know where the Blues Museum is? Mm, yes, I have been through, uh, well, and been by it, yes. Yeah, I haven't been in it either, but uh, I, I hear it's very interesting. But in that building, that building was built, I think, in 1906 for uh, Sticks, Bear, and Fuller, which is today was Dillard's, but huh. uh, that was a big department store. Uh, but before that, it was the first and second side of a hotel called the Lendl. The Lendl originally burned, which was a fancy hotel, in 1867, and to this day, you can see remnants of the Lindell Hotel. All you have to do is go to Tower Grove Park. Huh. And the Tower Grove Park, just a little bit east of the center drive on the north side of the park, there's a lagoon that was originally called a, a sailboat pond, but it's like a small lagoon. And what looks like ruins from a castle or something are there. But after the Lindell burned in 67, Henry Shaw himself supervised getting stones from the foundation and having them move to his garden, really private garden, uh, and rebuilt. And so they're still there today all these years. You've got a lot of great wedding pictures are done there. Well, how about but, that? Yeah, yeah, there's uh, the Southern, the old Southern Hotel. That was one that Robert Campbell owned. Uh, that, too, had a big fire. That burned on, I mean, completely. Uh, Mark Twain, Samuel Clemens stayed there. Oh, cool. Uh, and then the names, the list of all these people that stayed at so many places. And of course, you come up to date. There's more stars of any type, from Stephen Eady to Frank Sinatra to Mick Jagger, stayed at the Chase Park Plaza. Well, I, I want to uh, go back to the one you mentioned for a moment there, the old Camo X building in Abraham Lincoln, which is. <laughs> Uh, the first time I've ever heard a connection between a radio station and Abraham Lincoln, even if it is that loose. So that for, was it the first building KMOX had was connected to the hotel? Well, no, the first building uh, was uh, 19, well, the station actually technically moved in in late the last week of uh, 1925, but mm-hmm. the first full year ago in 26, that was in Mayfair. Mayfair Hotel, which is now, I think, you know, I haven't seen some of these hotels recently. I'm assuming it's still open, called the Magnolia Hotel. Hmm. But the Mayfair was at the south, or is at the southwest corner of Eighth and Olive. Hmm. I mean, I'm sorry, eight, excuse me, Eighth and St. Charles. Um, kind of off the beaten path. Uh, you know, one block 
south of Washington, uh, but a beautiful hotel. And KMOX had great studios, I am told. I didn't see them myself. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, one of the notes I found that they had uh, there, when they opened, they had installed an $18,000 Kilgan organ in the studio. Mm-hmm. That's a lot. $18,000 in 1925 is a lot of money. Then mm-hmm. uh, uh, they had a full studio orchestra. Live music was a big deal in those days. I mean, if you, there were no, you couldn't play hit records, so to speak. So generally every station did the live stuff. So they, they were down there for quite a few years at the Mark Twain Hotel. And all, then the studio orchestra, all of that music is at the SIU Lovejoy Library at SIU Edwardsville. Mm-hmm. Why it's there, or, uh, <laughs> or who wants to see it, you never know. Yeah, let me do, I did a quick inflation calculator. So this organ was $18,000, was it in 1925? Yes, Okay. So twenty five. If we were to adjust for inflation today, that would be about $272,000 for this organ. <laughs> That's pretty funny. And even in that day, that early day when they went on the air, the station was known as the Voice of St. Louis. Great. That's maybe the oldest running slogan of any radio station anywhere, that, darn close to it. That might be a great, interesting, fun fact about the radio station. But when you mentioned that, uh, the hotel and the connection with Abraham Lincoln, I thought, wow, that, that's the wow, first time I've right. heard of uh, anything like that. But if there's so much history in St. Louis. It's amazing the things you could discover just by looking yeah. around. And sometimes you drive by these buildings and have no idea the historical significance behind them. That's true. And some of the buildings, they don't have to be big, magnificent buildings. Some are very small, uh, tiny buildings in some cases, but sometimes the stories... Are, are terrific. I, I may have mentioned this before. Uh, uh, this movie studio row, which was basically Olive Street and a little bit of Lindell, uh, east between Jefferson and Grand, uh, one of the buildings is still there. It was the RKO building, RKO mm-hmm. Radio Pictures, which is at the northeast corner of Compton and Olive, mm-hmm. which is now the Bernard Rubber Stamp Company. Mm-hmm. And it, it was the distribution center for RKO Pictures. All the studios had uh, had offices here, and but there was also a theater there, originally called the Movies, and later it became the Art Theater, the little teeny tiny 115-seat theater that basically showed so-called true art pictures, not porno pictures or anything, mm-hmm. and uh, foreign pictures as mm-hmm. well. So, And the closest hotel to that is a building that still looks like it must have when it was built in 1925. It's called the Drake Apartments today. It's an Olive and Leonard. It's a sort of a mission-styled stucco building. And on the Olive Street side, there's a bas-relief uh, sculpture, a, a frieze in the wall called The Coming of St. Louis. Uh, that building was designed by Preston J. Bradshaw, who designed more hotel buildings in St. Louis than anybody. He did the Chase, uh, the Melbourne, the Coronado, and, and several other hotels. He was a uh, Really prolific architect. His worst work, though, unfortunately, is right across from the KMOX studios on the other side of the little park. It's the Ford Apartment Building, which was his last job in 1949, but it doesn't have the class of all his other hotels. And, and I think they're all still standing, every wow. one that he designed. So this is kind of an idea, some of the things you heard on the interview here. If this is the type of thing that interests you, being the listener, be a great opportunity for you to watch the digital presentation, which will start tomorrow in, on the website, stloasis.org. It's 
history of hotels and motels in St. Louis. And what's the time that you're going to be giving that class? 10 a.m. It runs from 10 to noon. Mm-hmm. Great. And that's it. It's over. It's over. I'm sorry, 10 to 11. Excuse yeah. me. At 11, it ends. Uh, we don't care. We, there's so many stories we could go on for hours with it, but it's a one-hour show from the introduction to the closing. So it, we try to keep it uh, pretty positive and upbeat and cover a lot of stuff but not get too boring. Well, that's great. Well, it sounds like another great presentation. You've done so many, and you've done such great work preserving the history and then presenting it in a way where people could enjoy it. It's not boring. It's very enjoyable. Johnny Rabbit, tomorrow you can see the presentation that's happening, the history of hotels and motels in St. Louis, part of the St. Louis Oasis organization there. They're going to be doing that virtual presentation, stloasis.org. Thank you for coming on to Overnight America tonight. Ryan Record, thank you. i got to go to the radio, turn it up, so I can see who else is on Overnight America. And he joins us on the Bomberito Automotive Group guest line. This is Overnight America, KMOX. You know who's been putting together an awesome series is Megan Lynch, and this week it looks at different aspects of the pandemic and the virus and how we've been fighting it. It's a series she calls When Will It End? And it's a feature that is on... Total Information AM, but I love it so much, I thought we would be airing it here tonight, also on Overnight America. Conquering COVID, now the latest on KMOX. I'm Megan Lynch. One of the enduring images of the pandemic shutdown is loved ones visiting family in nursing homes through windows. Now that more Americans are getting vaccinated, are nursing homes completely reopening and getting back to normal? KMOX's Carol Daniel tells us yes and no as we continue our series, When Will It End? I've seen some warm embraces that were really nice to see. One clear sign of the slow end of the pandemic is the sight of family members hugging and residents dining together. Carrie Lenz, executive director for Allegro Senior Living in Richmond Heights, says the move to a new normal will be incremental. Meantime, they're doing what they can to allow for more engagement between residents and with family, including a return to in-house visits. We got pretty creative. I, I mean, the other day we put an entertainer on our patio and socially distance all of our residents um, in the dining room. And reopening will be different for each nursing home depending on how the pandemic impacted them. For Lens, And I have, happy to say, I've kept COVID out with everything that we've been doing and our protocols. But, you know, there are a lot of sleepless nights that I worried that Am I missing something? Is there something, you know, am I going to be hit like some of these other communities? And you just worry about that. Those results are rare indeed. Devin Eads is executive director of Cedarhurst Senior Living in Collinsville. She says COVID hit close to home. Um, We actually lost our former executive director to COVID in January. So, you know, as a community, uh, internally, we've experienced some some internal, you know, personal trauma. And they lost four residents to COVID as well. Carlita Vassar is CEO and director of nursing for at-home care. Her company provides non-medical services services for seniors and disabled adults in their homes in a 64-county region in Missouri. When will the pandemic end for her clients? I don't believe we'll 
really get back to where we were before and kind of to be honest, I don't think we want to. Um, it wasn't exactly the best environmental situation prior to COVID. Vassar says the pandemic has made one thing clear. The nation has to do a better job in the way it serves its seniors and access to health care has to improve. She says that advocacy work they do, including getting their clients the vaccine, will likely increase as COVID cases subside. The other sign of the move toward a new normal, Vassar says, is a move in Like I said, I hope that what we get out of it is how much we do need each other and how wonderful we can work together when we do. Devin Eads adds, For us, you know, the full light at the end of the tunnel will be, you know, the county numbers going down to zero, you know, watching the hospital cases slow down and, and hopefully go away eventually. For now, her staff of 36 is still getting tested for COVID weekly, and all 48 residents have been vaccinated. Each person I spoke to thinks some things are here to stay. For EADS, that includes stepped-up infection control. And while still cautiously optimistic, she says the end of the pandemic does have a look and a sound that's breathing life back into her building. You know, seeing more residents out, enjoying the sunshine, getting out to the nice weather that we've been having, you know, enjoying each other's company again. And laughing in the lobby, uh, you know, music in the hallways, that type of thing. And, um, you know, for us, that's really what that looks like. And I have to say that for me, the light at the end of the pandemic tunnel means hugging and kissing my mother again for the first time in 10 months. (laughs) Carol Daniel, KMOX News. More than one third of U.S. coronavirus deaths occurred in nursing homes. Coming up in our next report, sports programs struggled to prove they could still play the game during the pandemic. Will high school and college sports get to play in front of fans this coming fall? Mm-hmm. It's a good question, and I know that tomorrow's feature with Megan Lynch will be a great one. We'll catch that on the show tomorrow. After the break, we'll take a look at your weather and also guest Stephen L. Miller. He's a creator and host of the Versus Media podcast. He has a piece out on The Spectator called The Perpetual Pandemic. We'll talk to him about that. Right after the break, it's Overnight America, KMOX. He is the creator and host of the Versus Media podcast, and he has a new piece out for The Spectator called The Perpetual Pandemic. Stephen L. Miller, welcome to Overnight America. Hi, how's it going, Mark? Good, thanks for doing this. And I look at the way, for example, Project Veritas, the last couple of days have been releasing videos from insiders at CNN talking about how they've taken advantage of the viewership and the people fear-mongering and using it as a way to gain ratings. And for the media and CNN, places like that, you can see how stretching this out works to their advantage. But I'm curious for you, politicians, pundits, and experts don't want COVID to end is the subtitle for your article. I'm wondering, why do you believe that? Uh, I, I don't know if I'm being 100% honest. I don't have really the answer to that. I mean, I, I definitely think you have a party and an Biden administration who obviously see a chance to completely restructure the country using, you know, piggybacking off the pandemic. This is, you know, right out of the Obama playbook. And so, of course, they have a motivation behind doing it. Um, somebody like uh, Anthony Fauci, you know, when he gives the interview, he just gave an interview for Business Insider where he, he was asked in a capacity, would, are you comfortable going to movie theaters? And he's like, no. And he's like, what about indoor dining? No, definitely not. And he said, travel? And he's like, no, I'm not doing that either. 
And he also stated earlier that he, he's comfortable never shaking hands again. And he doesn't differentiate between is he just kind of an, a, an OCD raging hypochondriac or is he speaking <laughs> as the top health official deified, you know, deified by the media and the president. So you have somebody like that who's just giving this mixed message. Um, and then, of course, you have the mixed messaging coming from the CDC last week, which was fully vaccinated people um, shouldn't still fly. They shouldn't get on airplanes. And if you do, you still need to wear a bag over your head and five masks. And then they eventually had to walk that back because people started questioning that. And they said, "Okay, it is good to travel. So you have this public health messaging telling people to go out and get vaccinated, but you still need to stay home and you still need to not live your lives and you still need to not gather. And I don't know. And we see this with uh, New York and D.C. media as well. Joy Reid on Twitter saying, I'm not going to I'm still scared to go out and do things. And you have all these conflicting messages. And I don't know if it's on purpose with those people or if it's just simply because of where they live in New York and D.C., whereas places like Texas, Florida and several other communities are wide open and people are going about their lives while people like Fauci scratch his head and he doesn't understand why there aren't spikes happening while there are Mm. spikes happening in places like Michigan and New York, where he said, quoting Andrew Cuomo, New York got it right last March and April. So I think there's varying motivations, and I think we need to find out more about why that is on some of these. Yeah, I've always enjoyed the questioning of Dr. Fauci when Rand Paul is very much, we're just going to lay this out, how much of this is for show? You're out there saying that go ahead and get the vaccines and then still wear a mask for another year. I mean, they were advocating two masks at a certain right. uh, time, even when you're talking about those that have been fully vaccinated and you should have someone of a protection. I mean, that's the whole point of getting vaccinated. So he asked how much of this is for show. So how much of this is for you to try to encourage other people to do it, even though you don't need to? Um, you know, it's like as a parent, you might not want to eat your Brussels sprouts, but you know, you want your kids to eat your vegetables. So you have to do it anyway. Is there a little bit of that going on where they're trying to babysit the people, maybe giving a false impression or the wrong information because they feel like it'll lead them to the right thing. I think we should know these things. We should be pretty clear if that's the reason why they're doing it. Yeah. And I was, I was one of the first kind of, you know, not, not doing a humble brag. I was one of the first kind of national writers to call for Fauci to be fired or step down back in December mainly because of everything you just said. You have someone who withheld information from the public, and he admitted this simply because he said, we didn't think you were ready to handle it. And that's not his job. If you go to a doctor and your doctor says to you, you know, uh, he, he, he sees on your charts that yeah, you could have cancer, but then six months later he goes, yeah, you do, but I didn't want to diagnose you back then because I didn't think you were ready to handle it. You're mm. not going to go back to that doctor. And that's essentially what Fauci has done. And you have an administration who you have, you know, Joe Biden wandering around the Oval Office and swiveling around in his chair, meandering while wearing a mask. And he's fully vaccinated and everybody in our government is fully vaccinated. And so I get maybe the messaging is we want people to wear masks, but we're starting to turn that corner to where people aren't going to be wearing masks through the end of this year. You have the NFL stating they want full capacity stadiums in the fall. And so if, you know, you have an administration and Fauci still telling people to be wearing masks in December, I think you're going to find a general public is going to largely tune these guys out. And then it just becomes what do businesses do? What do grocery stores do? What do governors do? Do governors lift their mask mandates in liberal states? And so all of these things have to be yet decided. But 
the messaging on this is horrendous. And we were promised that the messaging would get better if we could just get rid of the guy who tweeted too much, you know, and, <laughs> you know, if messaging on this is confusing, it's, it's mainly because of the person in charge is often confused himself. Yeah. Have you seen some of the latest videos from Project Veritas that have came out over the last two days? Uh, I have. I mean, I'm just I'm, I'm one of these guys who my head is constantly dunked in an apple bucket full of media. Um, and, and, you know, it's a program director is who, he, is who he had on. He doesn't really have or I'm sorry, kind of like a line director doesn't have a lot to say in editorial decisions. But nothing he said on that, I think, should be shocking to anyone. Um, if you just simply turn on CNN, everything he says is kind of confirmed. Um, and, and so they don't they don't have a President Trump anymore. They don't kind of have an arch nemesis. They kind of have turned their attention to Fox and Tucker Carlson and this absurd narrative that somehow Fox hosts not posting vaccine selfies is what's causing vaccine hesitancy when we're seeing, you know, our, our CDC and our FDA are pausing a vaccine because one in every one and a half million people experience blood clots. And that's not being directed by science. And so, and we also have this AstraZeneca thing now in Europe where, you know, Africa's pausing, Europe has paused it, and they're getting rid of it. And there was just an article in the New York Times. I'm one of those weird conservative guys who reads liberal media a lot, um, where you have people in Africa are asking their government, how do we flush this vaccine out of our system? How do we get rid of it? And that's not because Fox hosts aren't taking selfies. That's because Mm -hmm. of bad messaging and bad uh, bad, confused science. And someone just kind of needs to state that science isn't the end-all, be-all. Science is not a solution to things. It's a constant um, search for answers using, you know, periodical methods and data and mathematics and things like this. But it's not, you know, a religion, so to speak. And that's kind of how the left and people like Fauci treat these things. When we have legitimate questions about why are you halting a vaccine when you have literally a better chance of being struck by lightning than, you know, having a blood clot. And he just says, science. Well, that doesn't work mm-hmm. that way. And you're going to lose a lot of people and you're going to cause more vaccine hesitancy than um, any Fox News host not taking a selfie. Mm-hmm. Uh, Stephen L. Miller uh, joining us here versus media podcast. And we're talking about his latest piece in the spectator perpetual pandemic. And I was asking about the Project Veritas because I think it brings up a bigger question about preferred news sources. If you look at the news that is propagated on social media, there's always this sort of preferential treatment given to sources like CNN. If you're on Facebook or Twitter, you don't ever see them punished for anything that they post. However, if there's something contrary to what they're reporting, you see those news outlets in those uh, commentators or anyone else that's even putting opinion right. out punished or hidden. Or And now we're finding out, and this is part of the Project Veritas thing, if the mindset of CNN is we're just pushing this because, you know, if it bleeds, it leads and we're, we need the, the fear thing for ratings. It does show you that they do make certain news decisions based on those. And I think we should really question why are they uh, preferential? Why are they the ones that are the gold standard when it comes to social media news? Why are they the ones that get special treatment by these social media sites? And why, knowing what we know now, should they have preferential treatment? And I think that puts a little broader sense into what we're doing on social media now. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot there's a lot to that. Essentially, Social media, Twitter, Facebook started out as kind of a sandbox. It's, you know, five, ten years ago, it was a place where, you know, you or me or anybody out in your audience, we could just go on, we could create an account, 
Um, and you could, you know, not just like lob F-bombs at people, but, you know, you could talk back to these people. And if there's anything we've learned about people in media is they hate being talked back to. They, they are firm <laughs> believers in gatekeeping and we're the sources of information you are going to ingest. You are not going to produce. And what where Facebook and Twitter excelled is anybody could go and produce. Um, that, that's basically how, you know, I, I ended up with National Review and Fox and these things where I was just kind of a guy with a Twitter account in 2011. And now because of pressure and because of, I would argue, bullying and because of threats from gatekeeping media like NBC, CNN, CBS, ABC, New York Times, Washington Post, um, they've made it well known to places like Twitter and Facebook that they're, they think they're more valuable than, say, the average user's. Facebook's power comes from its user base, not ads, not political ads or anything like that. And so essentially this all just comes down to places like CNN and places like New York Times essentially trying to get rid of their competition. And the best way they can get rid of their competition is to essentially bring them into the fold. And we saw that happen with the New York Post story, the Hunter Biden story in the election, where a, a, a true story, a factual story, was essentially blocked off of Twitter because – Twitter said, no, 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 this is fake. This is Russia. This is misinformation. We're not going to let this spread. And right there, I think, was the turning point where Twitter became an ally of gatekeeping media and Facebook became an ally of gatekeeping media. And maybe on a long-term scale, I think that's the end of these platforms one way or the other, because we're seeing other platforms crop up. I have a podcast on Patreon, which is a completely independent media source. It's kind of you know, a liberal source, but that's just where I think the conversation needs to be. We, we see Substack now. We see Clubhouse. And so I, I think Twitter and Facebook kind of making a deal with the devil to essentially just become platforms for blue check journalists is, is going to end up very, very badly for them. Because in the end, there, there are more users on Facebook. There are more people on Twitter than there are journalists. And essentially, this, that's what's going to happen. This crowd is going to overwhelm Twitter's partnership with gatekeeping media. And I think it's going to be the worst decision they've made. Wow. So as a creator and someone that's popular on social media networks and things, have you seen different ebbs and flows when it comes to this gatekeeping? Have you witnessed it yourself through your own back end statistics? Um, oh, oh, definitely. Uh, I, I mean, I think people are very, very hungry for their own sources of media. And the biggest complaint you see in gatekeeping media, so to speak, is the, the spread of misinformation, conspiracy theories, misinformation. And one of the themes I constantly hammer on is they are one of the largest propagators of misinformation. Uh, they don't care about misinformation. All they care about is controlling it. And a lot of these things, a lot of conspiracy stuff, and a lot of people going into their own shells and their own echo chambers and their own groups, um, and I don't necessarily see anything wrong with that, but where gatekeeping media like the Washington Post and media critics at CNN, they absolutely fail to see their role in how this happened. It, it essentially happened because people don't trust them anymore. And if you can't trust the people whose jobs it is to relay accurate, unbiased information and not cover up you know, narratives that are unfavorable. We saw the shooting in Boulder, Colorado, which killed 10 people. That's out of the news because that shooter is not uh, useful to them. The Capitol attack from two weeks ago, out of the news completely, other than, you know, this officer lying in state. And so people decide, if I can't trust you to get my information, I'm going to go to places that I want to go, period. And until I think gatekeeping media 
and structural corporate media has that reckoning, it's going to continue to get worse. And I don't believe they're going to have that reckoning anytime soon. Mm. By the way, if people wanted to find you or your podcast, your, your work, things like that, is there a good website or a place for them to look? Uh, I'm on Twitter at, at the, at the uh, handle at Redstees. And uh, my podcast link is in there. It's a subscription podcast. It's three whole dollars a month. Um, <laughs> it's cheaper than your daily <laughs> Starbucks. Um, and and uh, I do four podcasts a week. It keeps me busy. And then I also contribute for uh, Spectator, like you mentioned, which is mm-hmm. it's, it's a fun outlet. It has fun, unique points of view. It's not just kind of one heterodoxy angle. And uh, pe- you can learn a lot from people there. Some of it's satire, some of it's serious. And um, you, you can find me writing there as well. Are there any people that you really admire that are left leaning? Because this is what's uh, you, you talked about. You are one of the few. And that's kind of true. I mean, uh, we, we like to go to those news agencies where we don't have to have our guard up 24 seven to try to read some yeah. of the things that are going on in the world. So you find that you spend less time on the ones that you have to keep your guard up. Are there any particular journalists or things that may be left leaning that you read and say they're at least giving it a fair shot? Yeah, I mean, you know, if if you would have told me five years ago as I was kind of embedded in, you know, as I was at National Review and I was kind of embedded in, you know, the Twitter orthodoxy of journalists and stuff like that, if you were to tell me five years ago that I would almost be agreeing with everything that Glenn Greenwald is writing today, <laughs> I wouldn't have believed me. I would have, I would have beat me up. <laughs> you know? I would have like dunked, I would have dunked my head in my own head in the toilet. Um, but and, and Glenn's doing such interesting stuff about, you know, here is someone who was revered and so held up by leftist media and everything. And because he kind of refuses to play ball with this kind of new woke heterodoxy that is completely infesting every single institution that we have right now, he's now kind of, you know, a pariah in that community. And I talked with Glenn and the funniest thing we talked about is, you know, he's kind of a far left kind of Bernie Sanders socialist guy. And I am very much not that. Mm-hmm. And we just kind of laugh about how we just happen to have common enemies. And, and, and I just don't think the old battles of left versus right matter anymore. I think the battle is, again, what we saw with, if Twitter can censor the New York Post and if YouTube can kick off a governor's health policy panel with epidemiologists and health experts from Harvard and Stanford and Ivy League school, then YouTube can just remove that because they don't like it and, it and it disagrees with the CDC. I think that that's the problem. I think the consolidation of government plus corporate plus big tech is is kind of the big problem. And, I, and again, I don't think, you know, whether or not the capital gains tax should come or go, I don't think that that's the primary focus anymore. And I think more and more people are waking up to that as well. Wow. All right. One more time. If people wanted to look you up online, what's the best place to go? Uh, you, you can just get me a Twitter. I'm at Red Steez. Feel free to follow and say hi. I'm pretty uh, I'm pretty good at shouting back. And then again, I, I host the Versus Media podcast, uh, which is just on Patreon. And that link is on my Twitter bio as well. So you can Very just get good. me there and any of you guys can say hi to me. I'm, I'm pretty good at replying back. I, I don't I try to not have a big, you know, Twitter blue check ego. So feel free. To it's say exhausting. Hi being on social media, I was looking at some of your <laughs> tweets. You're on all the time, man. It's got to just wear you down. I, I think I'm, I think I'm conditioned to it. And, you know, some people <laughs> have games on their, you know, some people have games on their phone and things like that. And I, I'm just, I'm kind of an addict of information. And I'm also one of these people who 
I kind of grew up in the internet age of Reddit and forum boards and stuff like that. So it's just, it's one of these, it's one of these tools. And, yeah. uh, and, and I would even argue it's, it's a good weapon when you want it to be. Very good. Stephen L. Miller, make sure to look at his latest piece that's uh, online now, The Perpetual Pandemic. It's part of The Spectator, but some of his other work you can find link right there in his Twitter bio. Uh, Stephen, thank you so much for coming on to KMOX. Yeah, it was great. Uh, great having me on. In- enjoy my hometown Nolan Arenado guy there. Take care of him. Oh, I we're taking care of him. All right. Yeah, <laughs> we love him. I'm, I'm a mess guy now, which is uh, which doesn't make me feel as bad. So take care of that kid. We will. We'll, we'll take good care of him. We're so happy to uh, have him here in St. Louis. And thank you for saying I'll that. Bet you are. he joins us on the bomberito automotive group guest line great interview i really enjoyed Stephen l miller look him up on twitter and get some links to his podcast and some of his uh, work this is overnight america kmox well that does it for us on overnight america the replay hours are coming up next we'll be back uh, eight o'clock tomorrow night have fun have a great night we'll see you bye my heart beats with the long platform with something for everyone news in order to secure convictions in a court of law it is essential that we conclusively sports that clock at four Donchich. the step back three you bet music you set my world on fire yes, and even podcasts whatever you love hear it right here on TuneIn. go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening it's better over here. After investing billions to light up our network, T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, right now, you can switch, keep your phone, and we'll pay it off up to $800. See how you can save on every plan versus Verizon and AT&T at T-Mobile.com slash across America. Up to four lines via virtual prepaid card. Allow 15 days. Qualifying unlocked device, credit, service, ported, 90 plus days with device and eligible carrier and timely redemption required. Card has no cash access and expires in six months.